Welcome to the Rethinking Humanity podcast, where we dive deeper into what makes us human and what causes us to thrive. I'm Lacey Delane. I'm Sonia Larea. And we are so excited to have you guys. This is not a numbered episode. This is an interview, Rethinking Humanity interviews. Today, we have (laughs) Melissa Bernstein with us. We're so excited to have her. The name of this episode is The Power of Knowing Yourself. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. Before we get too far into this, I need to give you a context. If you can tell that I sound a little sniffly or I sniffle a little bit, I've been a little bit under the weather uh, after traveling, I think, is part of it. Um, so, uh, you know, that's that's what's going on. I'm not crying. Uh, our our, our uh, technical producer said, you might want to tell everybody <laughs> that you're sniffling a lot. I'm like, okay. But you sound good. You sound good. Oh, good, good. Yeah, you're clear. clear. (laughs) Today's a a special day, Sonia. Do you want to share with everybody and send our greetings? Yes. Happy Juneteenth. Yay. Happy Juneteenth. You know, it's a big deal. Uh, Biden, President Biden just made it a national holiday. So that's fabulous. We are fabulous. It's it's long coming. And I'm excited that uh, we have this as a federal holiday. That's awesome. Me too. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Well, uh, I want to share uh, with you guys in the future about my trip to New York City. It was amazing. Um, but we have a special guest waiting, so we're not going to get too far into it. But there is an article that we both read, Sonia and I, yes. this week that we think links really well with Melissa's story. And so we're going to talk really briefly about that. And then we're bringing Melissa in. So, um, Sonia, you're the one who found this article. I think it's a New York Times, New right? New York Times. Yeah, the article is titled How to Have Closer Friendships and Why You Need Them. Now, mm. what I thought was really cool, and I know you enjoyed the article too, Lacey, it starts out talking about that infamous show Friends. Yeah. That was, you know, such a blockbuster. Everybody loved that. And it digs deeper into saying, well, you know, how many friends do we really have? And who are our friends? And do we need friends? And my takeaway is we need friends. Desperately, we need friends. And whether you have 10 close friends or two, the human condition requires that we connect with one another and that we have these relationships that actually sustain us. They're a need. It's not like a maybe. Like this is something we all need. Right. So and what did you think? Yeah. That's that's part of why we do the podcast, because like we say, like these are needs. And they're human needs and they're things that really aren't that high on our priority lists, which is part of what they say in the article. When when they ask people, what are some goals you have? What are some things you have as needs? Friends and close friends was not even on the list. And there's a doctor of psychiatrist and neuroscientist, Amir Levine. He wrote a book called Attached, The New Science of Adult Attachment and How That Can Help You Find and Keep Love, which I've read and I highly recommend. He says Social connections are the most important way for us to regulate our emotional distress. If you are in distress, being in proximity to someone you're securely attached to is the most effective way to calm yourself. How can you say that connections and friends are not important when that is true based on research and neuroscience? Yeah, I thought that was incredible. What I also like in the article, if anyone wants to read this, it actually gives you like some uh, ways that you can start connecting with people. And one of them I would say would be like uh, being vulnerable and, uh, you know, developing that intimacy that you need. Um, And we all, we all need that. We all need to be having individuals that we can share our, our struggles and share our joys with. Right. And I think the other thing that this article talks about is how as a culture, we are more focused on career success, financial Mm -hmm. accomplishments, family milestones, And we think automatically that when we have those things, uh, we have money, we have success, as our culture tends to define it, we will have happiness. And that's not necessarily the case. And I think even our guest, Melissa, would be able to affirm that for us. Yeah, that's why I'm so excited about talking to her today. So yeah, well, let's Let's uh, make it happen. (laughs) let, Let me introduce her and let's bring her in. See if she agrees with us. Um, Melissa Bernstein is a wife, mother, and businesswoman. She and her husband are the founders of Melissa and Doug Toys. Melissa is the author of Lifelines, an inspirational journey from profound darkness to radiant light, and the creator of the online emotional wellness community of the same name, Lifelines. So we welcome you, Melissa. Come on in. Yay. 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 (laughs) Thanks so much for having me. I'm so honored to be here. 
We're glad to have you. Super glad to have you. So would you agree with what we're saying um, that, you know, you can have, you know, money, success, all these things that society tells you and still not really have happiness or well-being? Yeah, I mean, I think it starts with just the myth that our goal in life is the pursuit of happiness. Because the truth is, what is happiness? And oh. is happiness what we should be aspiring to? And if so, we are going to be in some big trouble because life is not all butterflies and rainbows. <laughs> wow, I love it. We're kicking it off so well here. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Busting the myth of pursuing happiness. That's amazing. Yep. Why do you think that's important to realize that? Well, I mean, that messed me up my whole life because once we all buy into the fact that life is supposed to be a fairy tale, right? Happy every day and that doing X, Y, Z will get you there. Then guess what happens? It doesn't get you there because humanity and being human is not happy every day. In fact, much of life is not happy at all. It might be equanimously centered, but that's mm -hmm. not happy. It might just be being okay with being. Mm. So then it sets up in the whole humanity for feeling inferior, inadequate, and incapable of achieving something that we never should be striving toward in the first place. So it's setting up a lifetime of feeling inadequate. And I know that's how I felt. I know every single person I speak with, whether they're an Olympian or a top model or an entrepreneur, we all feel inadequate. And I honestly think it's because of that very first premise that X, Y, and Z will make everyday bliss. And it's not for anyone. So then by definition, we feel a sense of despair. Yeah, I, I was really touched by your story. And something I could relate to and I, that resonated with me is... Um, being someone who said, well, if I do certain things, if I make good grades, if I please people, if I follow society's pattern of what I should do, then I will be happy or I will have achieved what I'm supposed to quote unquote achieve. And doing all that, there was still this emptiness and this loneliness. And it, it was, what do I do now? Well, mostly because in doing that, I denied, repressed and disassociated from any emotion because it became a goal in my head. And it became this like striving toward external validation only. So when mm. you try to fill an inner dearth with external validation, you don't engage in anything but a futile race. So yeah. I was exhausting myself trying to attain these things that I thought would fill my well. And in reality, I wasn't doing anything other than exhausting myself and chasing a, a dream that wasn't possible. Mm. I, gosh, there's so many questions I have from, <laughs> from your perspective. And I mean, for me personally, I'm passionate about the this on a societal level. So I wonder what in your experience since you've launched Lifelines, what have you experienced from people? How widespread, I guess, is the question that I'm trying to ask? Um, from your point of view, are these, you know, dysfunctions? I think it it is a fact for every single person. Unless your head is so far in the sand and you're so oblivious to even asking questions that you're just kind mm. of happy being there with your head in the sand. But I think for anyone who's even the slightest bit introspective and curious and, and is striving for something, they will inevitably be left bereft and feeling that something is wrong and seeking meaning. Because again, society tells us meaning comes from outside ourselves when yes. meaning only can come from nothing outside ourselves from diving inward. And we're not at all taught how to do that. I mean, I only by accident started connecting dots in middle age and diving inward and had that not happened, I would have ended my life with the number one regret, by the way, of anyone on their deathbed, which is I never lived a life true to myself. Mm. Mm. So would you say that the majority of us um, are living this way because society, this is sort of culturally the way we've been taught. 
And so I, there are people yes. that don't even have awareness. They're not even in touch that majority of us have like this underlying depression that that we act out through addictive behaviors, whatever, if, whether that's shopping, exercising, you know, whether drinking, I don't know, you know, and that there's just that the, we're kind of numbing to have those emotions that you're saying. Yeah, I mean, the stat, the, the statistic I've read on whether you want to call it individuation, which is Carl Jung, or self-actualization, which is Maslow, or mm -hmm. positive disintegration, which is Dabrowski, that mm -hmm. only 2% of the population gets there. So 98% wow. of the population lives in what I call inauthenticity, mm. lives in denial, repression, disassociation, and never kindles their spark, never realizes their full potential. Damn. So yes, what, and, and some of those qualities that are necessary to do so are born in us. They're innate, that sort of dynamism that makes us want to do it. But yeah, I think even more of it is cultural, sadly, mm. and makes it so we never even go there. And the other part of it, which is even more disturbing, is society tells us that the anxiety necessary for growth is a bad thing. Anytime we face anxiety, and anxiety mm. is at an epidemic now, what mm. do we try to do? We try to pathologize. We try to get rid of it. We try to medicate it. We try to do all kinds of things to get rid of it. Mm -hmm. When all the wisest philosophers from the beginning of time will tell you that the, the chasm between inauthenticity and authenticity is deep, dark anxiety. Wow. And the only way you individuate, individuate and, and integrate both your unconscious, that whole shadow side with your conscious. Mm -hmm is through going through a lot of anxiety because yeah. it's wow. a challenging process. The, so the, I think we've yeah. made it. So facing that anxiety is like, no, I've got to run back into inauthenticity and hide yeah. from it. And mm. it makes it so you, you can never grow. Yeah, the dark mm. night of the soul. I would be love you for people who don't know your story to tell us a little mm. bit of how you know your beginning and how you got to the place you're at now. Oh, great. Sure. <laughs> and I'll try to do it in a, in a synopsis. Uh, yeah. So I think I was born, I now know, with something pretty rare. It's not even listed as a disorder in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. It's called existential depression. And mm. I was born with this deep, dark sense of meaninglessness toward existence and toward my role in my own existence. And I basically asked the questions from the time I could form thoughts. So I was probably two and a half, you know, which were, why am I here? What is the meaning of life if we are ultimately just going to die? And what am I meant to do during my brief time here? And because mm. I couldn't even really verbalize those questions, much less get an answer to them, I fell into what is called existential nihilism, which is this deep, dark abyss where you believe there's no meaning to existence and we as humans have no ability to make meaning in a meaningless existence. So it was this sense of futility toward everything I did and this sense of absurdity, incongruity toward everything I saw in society, which was like, people just seemingly going about their life so carefree when I was like, can't you see the truth? What is wrong with everyone? And feeling mm. like I was utterly alone in my own, my, I felt like I was the only one who felt like, why is everybody acting so happy and carefree when life is about to end and the, the, you know, the clock of mortality is just ticking. Mm. Um, so I think it was that, deep, deep sense of despair. And because I couldn't share it, because society told me very early on, no, 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 no. Young people do not think about things like that. We do not talk about anything dark. We do not show despair. We put on shiny faces and we, you know, we bear anything that's going on and we never show yeah. it. Right. I needed validation. And because I couldn't be validated as the deep, dark, churning, introverted, creative misfit, I was mm. highly sensitive. I anchored mm. to the only things I could for validation, which were perfectionism, 
my in my achievements because I very early on I was I was good academically and I received all the you know shiny gold stars for that and also pleasing others and serving others because that made me a good girl and I got a lot of pats for you know being how I should be and serving others and both of those things perfectionism and martyrdom mm -hmm. they basically mm. say I don't matter my mm -hmm. needs don't matter. My emotions don't matter. I'm going to get rid of them. I'm going to disassociate from anything that makes me a feeling emotional human. And I'm just going to um, live externally, achieving and serving. Mm. And ultimately, that made me uh, a robotic, bereft, actually internally seething person. Wow. Yeah. I mean, all that repression, all of that, like it's, it's it's a resentment, you know, of not being able to be genuine. This is the I love what you're saying about the chasm between inauthenticity and authenticity. That is really what I think actually is the root. And maybe this is what you were saying a minute ago of all of that anxiety is like, oh, I can't be authentic. I can't be my authentic it self. Is. Yes. That's, and, that's and it's it's nest like when I read because again, I lived with all these misperceptions my whole life, right? You know, that I can't show anything other than shiny. I have to plow through everything. I can never ask for help. I can never show weakness. I have to be perfect. And mm -hmm. all of these emotions we feel that are not shiny are imperfect, right? Mm -hmm. They're, they're dark, they're angry, they're unsettled. So that meant I can't associate with that part of myself. I have to like deny mm -hmm. it. And, and I, in, in, in addition, had a voice in my head telling me to end my life because it was all futile. So the only way I'm here today was such a disassociation from who mm. I was. And ultimately, that doesn't serve us because the only way, and when I read, I was getting to, when mm. I read the most brilliant philosophers, which ended up being my meaning path, came through reading the philosophy of so many brilliant minds. And when they all said, anxiety is essential and necessary for to to trans transverse the chasm between mm -hmm. inauthenticity and authenticity i was like what like yeah. all this i've been feeling all this despair over the paradoxes and not wanting to accept and integrate the dark parts of me because i was terrified of them being rejected is actually means i'm I have the ingredients necessary to do this incredible, you know, traversion from inauthenticity to authenticity. It's actually a good thing. It was like unfathomable mm. that I mm. had done for decades the thing that was actually my pathway into expressive liberation. Mm. Yeah, thank I, you, I, Nick. Of time, yeah. I'm glad you tuned in too. Go ahead, Sonia. Oh, no, I was just saying. I love. Um, I know one of the persons you read was Viktor Frankl. And yeah. Wow, if uh, that doesn't move you, right, uh, for some degree. And, and the other you. one, you know, the other one who's incredible. I mean, I have so many philosophers that I feel like, to be honest, when I started reading them, I almost felt like some weird feeling like I embodied them or they embodied me because the words we even used were so much the same. And in wow. my verses, some of the exact same phrases. And I had never read them until like a couple years ago. But Soren Kierkegaard, who's the father of existentialism, he said something beautiful. Anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. So ah. when we realize that we are ultimate potential, that we are every single possibility waiting to be realized and manifested, what does it cause? Anxiety, obviously. So what do we do? We make this little box around us where we have very little choice, where we, we're miserable in it, don't get me wrong, but right. because we're taught that anxiety, like don't go there, that's, that's bad. It's, mm. you know, it's pathologized as something bad. Uh, then we, we can't, we're stuck, right? We're stuck in the box because the dizziness of freedom is too terrifying to navigate. Yeah. Yeah. And anxiety doesn't, um, produce a citizen that's easily, um, manipulated, I guess, or, or consumes. I mean, in some ways it does, because the more they, that's one way to deal with anxiety, but, but taking time to actually deal with it 
that's not good for uh, consumerism. <laughs> no, and the journey is very individual. That's the other thing. You can't put it in a box because our journey to authenticity is incomparably unique. I can only do it for myself. You can only do it for you. And it will, you can't put it in a pathology. There's no one way to do it. And it can take your whole life. I mean, it can take a couple of years. Mine took four years to literally just go inward and finally accept my, my full spectrum of who I am. So it might take a year, it might take 20 years. So that's the problem. We, we are very terrified in Western culture of anything that isn't right, very rigid and process oriented, process oriented yes. and logical. Right. And, and very and instant. instant. Yeah. Yeah. So when you're talking and about very instant, also, right? Yeah. <laughs> instant uh, and caring for others. I also thought of the gender being female is another one that we embody that mm -hmm. how we're supposed to be happy and we can't show sadness and we can't be upset. Yep. For me, it became a virtue. So my virtues became I'm going to serve until I'm in the ground. Like, and, and the more put on me, you bring it on. Like, I will do it with a smile, even though I don't feel that way. I will be perfect. I will look perfect and I will act perfect. And that became like, they became my, my virtues. And part of my validation was like, I don't care how I feel. I won't associate with that. And I will keep marching on. And, you know, I was, I was crazy enough because even missing school was imperfect to me that I would run the thermometer under cold water wow. to actually, you know how most people put it under hot. So they, I would, I would see, I had a fever 103 and I would quickly run it under cold water and be like, Oh, I'm not sick. I can go to school to mm. my mom because I thought like missing out on anything, any bit of knowledge would like mean I would be lacking in some way. Mm. And and we think, and what model are we showing children? What model are we showing exactly. others? You know, Horrible when that's model. what they're seeing. And and but going back to the culture, I think the culture definitely instills in us this. We live in a culture that it's external, external, external. Those are the rewards, and it's all mm -hmm. over. It's it it surrounds us. We kind of live in this soup of the externality of our world. And and it it may be the, the greatest myth ever that nothing you achieve in life will ever fill your inner hole when it's external. Yeah. So that is why we never get there. And 98% of people die saying, I never lived a life true to myself because they've never taken the time to actually go inward and figure out who they are. So yeah. if you never make that journey inward, you can't even know what your seeds of self-expression are that long to be kindled. I mean, you'll, you'll go down some other path, maybe thinking it's the right path, but you've never actually done the work and the work starts, you know, it's funny because my life now is coming full circle because I've spent, you know, over three decades creating toys for children and fighting for children to have authentic childhoods. Mm. And the truth is like finding that innate spark that longs to, you know, rage freely is found in childhood. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's when you learn to discover kind of what I like, what I don't like, what type of people I like, who I am. And so many children today aren't even given a childhood because we're so in insistent on them going to an elite college or, you know, achieving in this, this conventional sense that we don't even allow them to play. We just put them in skill-based, you know, activities from the time they're age two on. And yeah. because of that, they truly never get to just play for no purpose and do the things that bring them joy and discover what brings them joy. Yeah, it's one of the reasons I'm such a huge fan of Montessori schooling, that the Montessori approach, which I believe about your toys, they tend to kind of fall into that school of thought, like you're saying, yeah. the power of play, truly, that's where where we learn as human beings. It's experience-based, basically. And that's what we need. And unfortunately, what you're saying and what we see, and I'm also a nanny, uh, previously was an elementary school teacher. Um, so I've worked with kids my whole life. And what I see a lot of times with families and parents is that they really want to control their kid. 
yes. <laughs> they really want their kid to do X, Y, Z and, yes. you know, tell them exactly what to do and what to say when, and, you know, um, seeing that from a different perspective with the family that I worked with previous, that was very Montessori based. I, it changed my mind about how this is supposed to look and how our lives can be. It's, it's the same thing as having your own authentic experience just on the childhood level. And anyway, that's the way that I've processed it. Yes. An open-ended toy is a toy that is all about the child. And the toy is strictly a spark to mm. ignite that child's unique imagination. So that is the Montessori way. It's open-ended learning, which means that it will change no matter what child is going through it. And another one of the, the quotes that I always found so powerful is, the number one threat to children are their parents' unrealized dreams. Wow. Mm. Because what happens is we believe we're going into this parenting thing, like just wanting what's best for our children and just wanting them to be who they innately are. When in truth, it's so far from that, sadly. And I mm. fell victim to it myself. You know, I fell victim so many times to thinking I wanted what was best for my children when in truth, it was really what was best for me. And that's a horrific realization. Yeah, that is fascinating. Like when you, I believe in your article, you also talk about as a child, I started thinking about this, how your own creativity was kind of squashed because you're looking, you're kind of doing the, 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 um, social, the path of society that says which way we need to go. And I remember thinking, you know, when I'm younger, oh, I'm not artistic or I'm not creative because we would be put in these boxes, like whether if you did, could draw or if you did music. And it's so limiting when I think of that. And then I also see how society, like you're saying with our own children, is we're not supporting that. We need a world that would support what Lacey was saying, maybe the Montessori method or different methods of how we are teaching and what we're allowing our children to do because play we see play is not important. Yes. Mm. And, and, you know, I mean, I never called myself creative until about a year ago because uh. the qualities associated with being creative are so stigmatizing. And wow. I was so rejected my whole life so when true. I showed anything <laughs> that made me creative. And it makes me so angry. I mean, I wrote a verse about it. I was so angry, you know basically as creatives we're maligned for exactly who we are yet people want what we create yes. yet they're not willing to accept us for the personalities that create those beautiful products they want right. so i think it is about it is societal because if we're saying we want you know creatives who think differently and and the way i am is i see everything with a slightly different lens it's actually a very simple lens and I'm always asking the question why, and I'm always asking people to explain why, because I don't understand it in com complex terms. Mm -hmm. And I was always, oh my gosh, when I was in class, I would, they would say it so loudly I could hear it. They'd be like, oh, there she goes again. She can't stop asking questions. Like, like just shut up, you know? And they would literally, and and very quickly, of course, I didn't, I wasn't like a like I'm gonna take this on. I was like, oh gosh, well, nobody wants to, you know, hear from me. So I'm just going to be quiet. And I stopped asking those questions, sadly, because, mm -hmm. or I sometimes go up to the teacher after class, but it was like, nobody cared about, you know, really understanding it. They just wanted to, you know, get through the class and not have someone hold it up. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, I know I learned very early on, hide everything that makes you a little bit different than mm -hmm. that societal norm. And we're still so far from, we do forced, you know, we do cool to be kind and mm -hmm. it's in my, our kids' schools. But to me, that's the worst thing we can do because it's not real. We're not really learning to see the other as they are. We're just saying, no matter what you think about the other, just repress it and put on yeah. a smile and pretend you like the other. And that's why I believe there's so many latent hostilities brewing more than mm. ever lately, because mm. people aren't really learning how to accept others and compromise and negotiate and see them for who they are and share in that humanity that we all, you know, really, that we all really are the same. 
Instead, we're just saying, you know, be quiet and don't show that you think that person is weird. Right. Right. And, and that again, links to your inauthenticity, um, individuals inauthenticity. And that's huge. I mean, it's, it's, the foundation of being able to have a real connection with someone. Cause it if it's really not really is, yeah, if it's not authentic, it's really not real. It's not, it's a pseudo and there's still And if that- we had the ability to ask someone, like if we had kids with special needs interacting with other kids and having the children who were so honest, be able to say, why do you talk that way? Like, what is it? Uh, you know, and have the child who has a special needs be able to answer. Like, can you imagine how beautiful that would be? Yeah. Like, you'd be able to really dialogue and really understand why people are the way they are. And I think it would lead to so much more compassion and empathy toward each other. But mm-hmm. we don't even come close to do that. Those to, to are that's too a, a foundational relational skill, I would say, being able to have those conversations. And it's it's sad that as children, we we haven't found the tools. Well, I'd say as adults, we haven't found the tools to be able to teach children how to do that so that later in life they can do that. I mean, we wonder yeah. why our adult lot of relationships are so messy and difficult. <laughs> and, I mean, you know, on college campuses now, because I'm on a university board, you know, there are all these cries for safe spaces. And, and people going to the administration to solve problems that they should very easily be able to talk out themselves. But this mm. generation right. basically used intermediaries, meaning the teachers didn't allow altercations because everyone's so scared of what might happen. Mm. Parents got in the middle of their kids' relationships and, and called the parent. I mean, this is the generation where parents called me all the time because they'd say, you know, our daughters are having an issue. And I was thinking, (laughs) I'd laugh because I thought like that never happened when I was young. Um, And these were not even, these were like tiny little young kids squabbles. These weren't like bullying, um, but it was, they were terrified to let kids work it out. And when I would say to them sometimes, gosh, I haven't heard anything about it. Do you think we could just let it, you know, go for another week and see if something happens or they work it out themselves? And these parents would be horrified with me. Like you would have thought I said, like feed them to the wolves. (laughs) And they always work themselves out. Like a week later, never heard about it. You'd see the kids together as best friends. It was just, those are the things you have to go through to learn how to negotiate and have relationships and compromise and work out things and, so mm-hmm. I don't know. You know, I think we've 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 gone so far from I think where we we need to be. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about the era of helicopter parenting. This also exactly. living through your children, and we're not teaching them the skill set that they need, which is they have to figure things out. And when we're intervening, that's that's a problem. And as Lacey said, you grow up, you're an adult now. You you can't have those conversations. You can't. And that's why kids at universities are having such an issue now, because it's the first time they're on their own and they're running to the the counseling centers with some large problems, too. But some are running to them with things like there's a spider in my bedroom and I've never had to deal with that. I've always had someone help me with that. Like, literally, it's the full gamut. And it's not a joke. Like, they're having panic attacks because there's a bug in their room. Wow. And this is just, you know, just having not building those res- that those skills of resilience that enable you to cope with just mm-hmm. everyday life. Mm-hmm. Right. And and I like when you were talking about the other side that we have kind of that shadow side. I wonder how we as adults and in society teach children that that's OK, that, you know, you can feel angry, you can feel sad and that there is another side. Because they're also we, we being, don't. you know, socialized to have that happy, shiny face, like you were saying. Yeah, yeah you know, it always strikes me that every day, because I have six children, and every day my kids have physical education. Where's the emotional resilience education? Yes. And I, I, I believe that a change is coming. That physical education has to be called well-being. Yes. And it has to include from kindergarten on, it has to include our full self, not just our physical. I mean, because we're emotional, we're mm-hmm. spiritual beings as well. And it really has to be the entire pie or, right, we're building up our bodies to withstand injury. But how about our 
emotions? How about our coping skills? How about our resilience? How about our ability to, to really feel sadness, as you said, and, mm -hmm. and be okay with that? Because that mm -hmm. is something we're going to inevitably face a lot, whether we're, you know, whether we're depressed people or not, sadness will come into our lives in many forms. Right. And we don't have to feel uh, ashamed of that. I think right. that's something that's widespread as well. Like, oh, I'm having a bad day. I'm a bad person. Like, I'm not good enough because I'm having a bad day or I feel sad. No, that's called being a human being, you know? Exactly. Fun. And I think just being sad without even a trigger. Like, you could say I'm having a bad day because X, Y, and Z happened. But what about that us who are just emotionally highly sensitive and we wake up some days and we feel really low there's no reason except it's who we are and how no one accepts that though how about those folks who are just having a low day I, right. I love the fact yeah that you address this whole the existential part because it's something also that I think there are many people who can relate to that I have had these conversations and have thought what the hell are we doing? Why am I here? This is ridiculous. The same thing that you're stating, looking at the world going around saying, you know, how can people be having fun? Like we're going to die. <laughs> and so those are super important moments that one has to sit with. And I think not being out of that norm of just going along with the rest of the world can feel isolating. Yeah. It really can. And we don't have any way for folks to express that. I know I went my whole life, not one person, I never even knew the word existential existed. I didn't even learn that I suffered from this thing until I was middle-aged because I went through my life and nobody ever spoke about a meaning crisis. No one ever spoke about asking questions. Why am I here? Mm. I had to reread Viktor Frankl's Ooh. book to just find it on my very own. And that's that became my own crusade because I realized once it had a name, I knew, oh my gosh, I'm not the only person who experienced this. In fact, all these philosophers who I love so much came up with these philosophies to deal with their own lack of meaning. Yeah. And there were answers that I could find for myself and I had to follow their path because no one else showed me it. So I knew that I needed to, to forge that path for others like me. It sounds like we need philosophy to be important in education <laughs> again, too. Right. I do. mean, think about it. I mean, Sonia and I met in a philosophy meetup group in mm -hmm. Atlanta three years ago. So that's Ooh. how we became friends. Yeah. But I hadn't really known much about any of these philosophers until that time. And so that, I think, is something that could be so helpful because this is what you're saying. Philosophy is where you pulled and you were able to relate so much to these philosophers. And it's so life-giving. I love yeah. philosophy. And guess what? Philosophy in college is thought of as like the, the major that doesn't lead you to anything. I was like, just going to say that. It's not considered good. Like to me... You have it, Lacey. That is exactly what every single one of us should major in. in like philosophy. nothing else. We should yes. major in philosophy. But yeah. I'll tell you, you tell someone you majored in philosophy and they kind of look at you like, well, you're going nowhere. Exactly. <laughs> what are you going to do with that? <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. Oh, my that gosh. Which, um, I have a question about Lifeline. So tell us how that kind of was came about and what you're doing with that today. Yeah. Sure. So I think once I started to have these revelations just by accident in middle age and realized that, oh my gosh, I'm not actually the only person on this earth who feels this way. I wasn't dropped here from another planet. Like there are people like me. That was profound. And that really changed my life because we all crave, as you started saying in your friendship article, yeah. you know, I craved authentic relationships more than anything. I had just given up on trying because I didn't accept myself and I didn't offer myself compassion. I couldn't form any authentic relationship. It wasn't that people hadn't tried to be my friend. I had many, 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 but anyone who was like me, I rejected because they were, they were just too in touch with their shadow side. And I was like, get rid of that shadow side. I don't want to go there. Mm. So uh, my, my first, you know, step was to 
finally show myself in my totality. And that became uh, this book I wrote because I felt like I first needed to heal myself in order to help heal others. And I, I write a verse, you know, when you heal yourself, you heal the world as consciousness transcends single soul to all humanity and everyone ascends. Wow. So it was, you know, I knew somehow that I needed to change myself to change others. So I wrote my story uh, in its rawness uh, and, and in hopes that others would find the courage to write theirs as well. And then Doug and I decided that we wanted to do this for the rest of our days because there were so many people who were still stuck in inauthentic living and it shouldn't have to be that way, right? They should have the courage to cross over the abyss Mm -hmm. Or at least if they're not, have the courage to say, I don't have the courage. And, and at least know that they had a choice. I think to die without knowing you had the choice. Mm -hmm. If you choose not to do it, then that's your, your volition. Mm -hmm. But to know, to think you didn't even have a choice is a terrible way to go. So we decided to um, broaden this into an entire ecosystem called lifelines.com, which is meant to show three things. One, show folks that they aren't alone because I didn't want anyone to feel that stigmatization of feeling like you don't belong and that mm -hmm. sense of isolation that is so overpowering uh, to show that we all have the capacity within us to channel our darkness into light and make meaning uh, because I had been in, in the darkest state of probably that anyone can be because existential nihilism, there's no lower. Mm -hmm. And many folks, when they're there, they cho choose not to go on. It's a really dark place, but I was able to find the light and make my own meaning. And I wanted to show others that there is a pathway out. And then the third part is that until we stop racing externally outside ourselves for the answer and the validation, and we stop and have the courage to make that journey inward and accept ourselves in totality, we will never truly unlock our full potential or rest in peace. And that journey that I took is the centerpiece of our ecosystem. It's entirely free. You know, we don't, we don't charge for anything, but uh, that journey is the journey I took inward to finally accept all that shadow side of myself, all the darkness as part of who I am and part of my full mm -hmm. emotional spectrum. Mm. You know what's wow. so cool, Melissa, when I saw you on CBS News Sunday morning a few months ago or a couple months ago, my favorite quote from that whole interview was at the end when you and Doug were sitting together. I put this in my email to you, but um, and the interviewer said, you know, I guess you guys mentioned how much money you had spent on on this. I call it a wellness community, this online wellness community. And it's in the millions or something. And he goes, you would spend that much money on just total strangers? That's what the interviewer said. And Doug goes, of course we would. They're just like Melissa, you know? And I'm like, oh my God, I love these people already. Because Aww. you see that we're all this, we're humans. We're all the same. What, he will be so happy to hear that. Yes, <laughs> when we help each other, we help ourselves. And, and it's do. clear that you get that. And so it's so amazing. And I commend you for what you're doing. Obviously, oh. that's why we're here to have you on, you know, because we appreciate it. But um, it's just so cool to find those folks who think like that, and who understand, you know, from who we talk about a lot on this podcast talks about, if you say you love someone, but you only love that person, you don't actually love them because real love is loving the humanity in all of us. If I love you, Melissa, if I love Sonia, that means I love everyone else mm. because there's a human in you, there's a human in her, and that's what we love in each other. So, and we can see our own humanity in ourselves, that the ability for, the cap capability for hate and love and all of it, we all have those things. And so I think, I, what's so awesome about what you're doing is it's sending a message that says like, we're all valuable, we're all important. And, and there's a bigger picture here that makes society better when we help each other. Yes. And you know, existentialism, which is a philosophy that I have now adopted is incredibly powerful. 
because what it says is we all have the ability to choose to make meaning for ourselves. And that is one of the most empowering things you can do. It's terrifying, right? Because anxiety is a dizziness of freedom. But it's for me, it was all I needed because I realized that I had been playing the victim. I had been wallowing. I'd been waiting for meaning to come like pick me up off the sofa and like throw me into uh, the bonfire of humanity when I now realize, nope, no one's going to come collect me and throw me into life. I either choose to do it or I don't, but it is my choice. And that was like, whoo, I get this because I needed that. I needed a reason. And that became the reason you know, to, to try your best to make the most of the brief time you have here. So I think my message to so many who are wallowing, who are playing the victim, who are stuck is, okay, you're stuck, you've been stuck, but it's your choice to be stuck. And they're like, no, oh, it's not my choice. I'm like, I can't, it's just, I won't, it's just, I will not because I'm terrified. Mm. So- for me, when you say I can't, you're not saying you're saying I won't and I won't because I'm too scared. And that's okay. It's okay yeah. to admit that. That's awareness. But be yeah. aware that you are choosing to remain stuck because you're terrified of doing anything about it. And you can come out that, of that too. Yeah. That part that we were scrolling to that is so powerful that hit me is the part of accepting yourself, not fixing. I think yeah. people, that's huge, the acceptance of yourself. And just what you're saying. So that's acceptance of fear. You know, you have to recognize that before you can move forward and be. And I, you know, I, yes, I, I, um, it's going to involve fear. Anytime you jump into the unknown, by definition, you will be terrified. And I have a word I coined because if I'm not living every day exilified, which is the combination of being exhilarated and terrified, then yeah. something is wrong. Because it has to be exhilarating. I have to know that the possibility could be completely liberating. But also, if I'm jumping into anything I've never done, it's going to be terrifying. Uh, and if I don't wake up each day exhilarated, then I'm doing something wrong. You can't just be exhilarated and you can't just be terrified. Yeah. It has to be, you know, a combination. Wow. Yeah. Oh, so, so good. Yeah. <laughs> I love yeah, your it. story is resonates with so many people. And what's awesome is how you've created this organization touching so many lives. It's uh, yeah, that's definitely giving meaning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sure. But you know, it is challenging too, because I am putting the, the onus on the individual. And I think our society, as you said, it so beautifully is so much about quick fix solutions mm -hmm. and about, I feel X, when am I going to feel Y? Mm -hmm. When am I going to get better, right? When am I going to be where I need to be? And unfortunately, it's about accepting everything, every mm -hmm. bit of it all. And one of my other favorite philosophers, Friedrich Nietzsche, okay. he coined a term, do you know, Amor Fati, which yeah, is love your fate, which means mm. whatever it is from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows, it's all part of your destiny. Mm -hmm. So until you can in accept it and enjoy it. And he also said, until you want to live your life again, exactly as it was, then you better change something. So mm. if you yeah. can't say, I repeat today exactly as it was, then it means you're something you're not doing something that you need to be doing. I had a, um, a therapist that I worked with who was pivotal in my life. Um, I lost her uh, last year at the end of last year, worked with her for four years. And she set up phrase early in on working with her that has stuck with me. And it kind of goes along the lines of what you're saying about being empowered and she said to me, and I don't even think she was thinking about it. It would just came out of her mouth. And it, you know, for me, it was like, whoa, that was what I, that was me. That's what I needed to hear. She says, um, it's your responsibility to create a life in which you feel fully alive. And I was mm -hmm. like, whoa, basically like 
what you're saying. I'm not this passive person. It's not going to hit me in the face. You know, like I actually, I am empowered to go and create this life where I feel fully alive. And part of that is knowing yourself, knowing what makes you feel alive, what makes you come alive, you yes. know, and that is, that takes some work, you know, yes. but there's a power in knowing yourself because it's that launch pad for being able to create the kind of life that you want, being able to be authentic, authentic and not having that place of inauthenticity where you get to the place of, um, you know, resentment and, and frustration and you can not regret your life at the end. And so I think that's so powerful when we can look at this and go, I'm actually in an, an empowered place here with this. This is actually. Yes, I love that. And you can only even. So here's the other com complicating thing. You can only start to dive inward once you have met your physiological basic needs. Yes. So if you Ooh. are a martyr or you are denying yourself because I had uh, I tried to control everything and I didn't sleep, I didn't eat. I didn't take care of myself. If you are denying your well being full, you will only focus on your physiological needs. You will be obsessed with food or anything you're denying yourself and you won't even be able to grow. So it starts with filling your own well and caring for yourself, which is another reason so many of us end our lives not knowing because mm -hmm. we never learn self-care. Yeah. And we never learn how to be self full. So, and I had to change it from selfish to self full because part of my virtue was not caring for myself. It, it made me proud to say, I'm not even on the list. I'm going to serve others. I'm just going to run myself into the ground and I'm going to, you know, validate myself by just doing more for others. Uh, but now I know, you know, that I have to care for myself first or I will not be able to do anything I'm here to do. Yeah. The, the self-care part is so, so important. And I actually think, you know, what you're saying is so interesting about our physiological needs needing to be met first. It's one of the reasons why Sonia and I are huge advocates for a universal basic income. Um, because mm -hmm. we really believe that that is like a foundational way for people to know hey, my physiological needs are going to be met. I'm going to be able to eat. I'm going to be able to sleep. Yep. I'm going to be safe. Um, yep. And these are like foundational things. We can't get to the place where our society nope. is better because people are self-aware if there's poverty, basically. Poverty ruins. Exactly. Them. If you're mm -hmm. concerned about your safety, if you're concerned about your kid's safety, if you're concerned about the next meal, and and yes, you you can't even, that's the, the basis, the launch pad for doing all the internal work. So uh, that's been really important for me to realize. And yes, I'm more fortunate, but so I withheld it for myself. Mm -hmm. Like some folks can't right. even get access to it. Others of us just deny ourselves. And it's the same, it's the same ultimate, you know, issue, which is we're not going to be able to engage in any growth. Uh, but yes, I agree with you. I mean, I love that. that is impeding lots of yeah. people from doing it. I love your term self-full. I'm going to start saying that instead of self-ish. <laughs> and you're correct in taking care of your needs. One in three Americans, we don't get enough sleep. We've oh, kind of yep. demonized, oh, workaholic. Yep. You know, I only slept three hours. I work you know, yes. 80 hours. So we yep. need to get back to that balance to be able to even go into ourselves and do yes. the work. How many did you say? One in three don't One get enough sleep? three do not. I'm big into this. Yeah. I'm taking a master class in sleep. It's fabulous because it also talks about the creativity, that you need sleep mm -hmm. for your creativity. You need sleep for problem solving. You need sleep for to children growing up. If they're getting into their learning you know, parts, the teenagers, they need to you know, be able to communicate. They need sleep. <laughs> and it's fascinating. So yeah. True. yeah, and that's another myth. Right. Another societal myth is like you don't need. I mean, people talk about multi, and they say multitasking is horrible too. Yeah, that too. When you, yeah. There's like no such thing. You actually then you don't give anything. But right, our society is like I don't sleep. I multitask. I do a million things at the same time. <laughs> right. It's all myths. Yes. Right. Yes. If sleep has become one of the most important things in my life at post, so you know, the last four years, I'm like, I have to sleep. I. Yeah. I I, it's so important. And I think it's made a big difference in my like overall well-being, 
You know, like I'm not, I, I'm not going to sleep for four hours. I'm going to sleep for eight, <laughs> you know? So and part of my practice, my first compartment of my backpack practice is mm -hmm. this idea of, of my own energy. And because I never developed internal boundaries to set, and to me, sleep is a bad word. I don't like to sleep. I had wow. to actually create external boundaries so to force me to do it because I have no internal compass. So in, in sleep is one of them. Cause if I listen to my head, I would sleep maybe two to three hours a night um, because I have too much to do. I have too many things to create and the <laughs> clock is ticking. So when you're, when you have existential, you know, despair, you're like, you don't have enough time. Like you can't waste time sleeping. Um, but when I don't sleep, I get sick. I get, irritable, right? Mm -hmm. I can't think I'm, I'm like in quicksand. So I know I need it. And because my body still can't tell me I do, I have mm -hmm. to create that external boundary. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I think many of us have to do that. How many, how many people are uh, active on lifelines.com? Do you have any, do you know? I mean, we have 35 people in our organization already working mm -hmm. on all the things we're doing, but yeah. we've had, I mean, we do workshops and my gosh, we've gotten anywhere from, you know, 100 to a thousand people at our workshops. Oh, that's so, awesome. so thousands and thousands and thousands. So and um, it's a beautiful awesome. group of people who share who they truly are. Like it's very, I, I've had some of the best moments of my life when someone who has been on maybe five or six workshops with us, hasn't turned on their screen because they're Zoom, and then finally says, I have the courage. I want to wow. share something. And this is the first time I've ever shared it in my life. And they'll share it, and everybody will put up their little clapping hands and their hearts. And it's like, it's Aww. such an incredible moment when you see someone, you know, jump into that, that abyss for the first time. It's incredible. Are you guys awesome. planning on doing any in-person stuff uh, as the year finishes out or maybe in the next year or so? We are. We want to do in-person. We want to talk to a lot of corporations because I think in corporate America, there's still this very um, strict stigma against like showing that you're afflicted because then you might not move up the you know escalator right. into the C-level suite. So, uh, and having been, you know, a co-CEO for a long time, uh, I know how difficult that can be for those who are either facing people at home who are afflicted, their kids or themselves and are terrified of letting anyone know. So, um, so we're going to, we're going to do a lot of in-person things because I think, you know, we have a biological need yes. to connect. So yes. this Zoom things has been a nice, like, like it's been better than nothing, but right. it's not the same. No. Yeah. That's wonderful to hear. Wow. Yeah, I might have to great. come to some of these. I know. Me and Sonia have to come. That'll be awesome. I love <laughs> it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we uh, super, super appreciate you being here with us. Um, if there, is there anything else you want to say in closing or let anybody know how to, to get in touch or kind of sign up on lifelines.com? I mean, throughout the rest of the summer, we are going to be talking about practice. So our phrase is practice makes purpose mm. because I feel like my practice now that has become my medicine uh, is what enables me to be my best self each day. So what we're clinging to now, you know, you're not supposed to cling, but we're <laughs> clinging to this idea that we all need a practice to be our best. And that starts from childhood on, uh, because that allows us to truly accept ourselves and take those sparks and kindle them. Uh, and, and we need that deliberate, you know, practice to do it, or a lot of us won't. All right. So I think we're going to talk about the whole practice. So anyone who would like to join us are everything's free. It's lifelines.com. And uh, we, awesome. we, we write when our workshops are, I think next week on Monday, actually, we're starting our very first one on, on the practice. So cool. Love it. Love it. We got to do it, Lacey. Yeah, I'm down. Let's do it. Well, yeah. uh, if 
thank you again for being with us. This is awesome. I, man, I'm going to really enjoy talking to you. Like my mind is like, woo, blown. Oh, <laughs> I'm so happy. If I can take you feeling yeah. sick and, uh, uh, and lifting you out of your, your congestion, uh, then I, I feel so, like I've accomplished something. Yeah. Thank and the takeaway is to read some philosophy too, huh? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Nothing better. I am obsessed with philosophy. It's Yay. awesome. And go and pick up her book, Lifelines. Yes. Um, check that out. Uh, we definitely don't want to promote it on, you know, Amazon. We want you to go somewhere else and get our book. Uh, if you have to get it on Amazon, that's fine. But local, uh, local bookstore. Yeah, yeah we're, we're fans of we're local fans of them all. We love independent bookstores. I did at least 50 events with independent bookstores and, uh, you know, they're awesome. Awesome. Cool. Well, we appreciate you uh, very much, Melissa, and we appreciate all of you for being here with us and listening. And we will see you next time on the Rethinking Humanity podcast. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. <laughs>